Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. And thank you, Zoom, for the loud announcement. We are recording. This is going to be a fun episode. I'm here with my friend, Laura Adler. Laura, thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. I always love talking to you. As doom and gloom as I am. Yeah, I love the doom. So we're going to bring the doom today a little bit. And maybe a little bit of not doom, but mostly doom. And so by my request, I kind of wanted Lara to come on and scare the shit out of everybody. So blame me later when you leave this interview thinking like, what the hell just happened to my life? And then make decisions based off of that. So before we get into the the doom, most of my audience is probably pretty familiar with Lara and the work that she does. But if somebody is not at this point, Lara Adler is an environmental toxins expert and educator and a certified holistic health coach who teaches health coaches, nutritionists, and other health professionals how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from the results they're seeking the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposures so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. Combining environmental health education and business consulting, she's helped thousands of health professionals in over 25 countries around the world elevate their skill set, get better results for their clients, and become sought-out leaders in the growing environmental health and detoxification field. That's a lot of stuff. You like talking toxins. I do. It's like a it's a a real nerdy thing that I just have become obsessed with. I've been doing this for 10 years and I still get, you know, goosebumps when I'm doing this work and I get really fired up about new research. And it just happened to be one of those things that, you know, drew me in. Well, this is a subject that there's plenty to get fired up about. So you really don't ever have a shortage of like new research coming out to get really fired up about because the more research they do, the more things there are to get fired up about. And I remember when I took the dive and started learning uh, health stuff in the late, I don't know, 2008, nine, I started reading a lot of things that were kind of alternative-y in health after I got out of the master's program, which talked about none of those things. And Everything made me so pissed at first. Like, yeah. even if I was just reading a book on like the history of the pasteurization of dairy or this seemingly non big deal topic, like there was all this nefarious stuff in the in the food industry and in the insurance industry and in the medical industry and the drug industry and all those things. And I read most books, at least then, uh, were written from an angle of like sensationalism and fear, like big scary 22 word titles with this is the reason why you're all going to die because this thing this thing this thing is like the title of the book so there was a lot of that and a lot of things made me really pissed and the pissed is what made me do the things so that made me like take the action and teach the things and whatever was coming from a place of anger and nothing made me more pissed than the books i read on these topics because there were actual people that were actually have names that were named in the books who made decisions to put things that they know make people sick and dead in stuff that's going to go in the water and everywhere else 
because uh, they make like a lot of money to yeah. do that. And then they get fined a lot of money and they build that into the cost of the business model that, oh, we're going to get fined a lot because this is going to do this and it's really bad. So we need to charge this much to make this much to offset. And it's like literally there are people it in these sense. companies it's, whose it's, job yeah. it is to be like, we're going to get fined this much money for killing this many people. So we need to make this much. And these people have names. I'm not going to name names on the thing. You can read some of the angry books and they name the names or yeah. just type in like chemical company settlement or something and you'll get like things. But then there's been movies now the last like five to 10 years that I just watched the one that, uh, this year. I just watched it. The one with Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Uh, Dark Waters. Dark Waters. Yeah. Was that Dow or was that no? That DuPont was, that was or... DuPont. So um, Mark Ruffalo in the film Dark Waters is portraying a lawyer named Robert Bellot, who has spent the last twenty plus years really doggedly going after Dupont because of the groundwater contamination in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and some of the other areas, not only around the U.S. but around the world, where their factories have been contaminating, knowingly contaminating the water system with these PFAS chemicals, these forever chemicals. And they'd known, you know, for decades that there was there is knowingly. Knowingly, yes. They knowingly did that. Yeah. And um yeah. and so that that film Dark Waters is sort of like a legal case drama that uh sort of the animals were dying and people started getting a lot of cancer and he it was his hometown right uh, he uh, no it was wasn't there. It, uh, no, yes it was actually it was, it was his mom lived there somebody called him yeah his, yeah, his grandmother. grandmother and so he had a personal connection to the town and then he started looking at all this stuff and then some locals started asking him like hey can you you're a lawyer can you help us can you look into yeah. this and then he couldn't unsee the things that he yeah. figured out and then was threatened upside down, left, right, and sideways from every direction yeah. to not do the I mean, thing that he was doing. Ca- chemical companies are like the original gaslighters. They are like masters at gaslighting. Yeah, and gangsters too. Like that's. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, those episodes, like, there's a rabbit hole you can go down in this industry where, like, I just this year for the first time read all the details about the, um, what's the one in India that killed, like, Un- unfathomable so amount of people Bhopal. yeah i knew of that like but i never actually like sat down and read a thing that detailed it yeah it's like war crimes level of just absurd unfathomable inhumane greed and corruption and like violent hostility to people and so there's no there's no good guy in in this fight like in this in this industry, really. And it's a lot of times when there's these things that happen that people are harmed, you can make an argument that like, oh, well, this was unintentional or we didn't know or this. Almost ex- entirely every time there was knowledge and cover-up and hiding and yep. th- intimidation and threatening and yep. all of that. So yes, the people and the, and the companies and the chemicals and the things we're going to talk about, they are that bad. And there's an objective good and bad, and they're bad. And yeah. we're going to just try and, and to help educate I'm, you. I'll, yeah. And I will say that, like, you know, look, I'm a, you're not, I'm the last person you're ever going to talk to that's going to defend the actions of these chemical companies and product manufacturers that are utilizing questionable chemicals in, in their consumer products or that are dumping them in waterways. Um, and I think that there are, you know, I have a, I have a, a client who is uh, works as a paralegal 
and has been in court cases against ExxonMobil and and all of these big shell shell oil um, because of issues like groundwater contamination. And and you know she's sort of very much active on the scene in these legal proceedings. And her stance on this, which like I I take with a lot of value, is that. Yes, certainly there are bad people at these companies that like just don't give a shit and all they want is profits, profits, profits at the cost of anything. And there are people within the company that are trying to ring alarm bells, but there are other people that are suppressing them. So I think yeah, in- those people generally don't have jobs very long from my no, understanding they, of how it they, works. Yeah, they, they tend to not. But I think that like, you know, we want to Yes, there are bad people. Not not everybody at all these companies are bad people. Some of them are trying to do the right thing. They are the researchers that are doing studies on employees or work factory workers or communities and bringing this information to the higher ups at corporate. And then it's corporate's decision what to do with that information. So, you know, there are people that are from the inside trying to do the right thing, but they're butt up against this sort of corporate bureaucracy and constant drive for profit. I I also just want to mention for folks that like go watch Dark Waters, also go watch the documentary that was made before Dark Waters, which is called The Devil We Know. And that is the documentary versions side of that same story. So you'll get the dramatized version and the documentary version. And then, you know, there are, there are, like you said, so many films, so many, I actually had an Instagram post a while back where I highlighted some of my favorite films and, and most of them are scary and they do, they are there to wake people up. And I think that that's important and necessary. And as you know, because you know me, Michael, is I try to, because this topic is so heavy, I try to, whenever there is opportunity to do so, to inject a little bit of levity into this conversation, because it can be really overwhelming for people. And so with that in mind, I do want to make another film recommendation that is totally pertinent and relevant, but is also amazing and silly. And that is the 1982 film, The Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. So if you have not seen this film, go see it. I saw it as a kid and was like, oh, what's not funny about Lily Tomlin and a guy in a gorilla suit because, and then like Lily Tomlin in a big chair because she's shrinking. And so they have to use all these comic props. But that film is a commentary on the use of chemicals in commerce. That is what, and corporate malfeasance. So revisit that film now and you will see it through a completely different lens. I promise you. I just watched it over Christmas again. It's like one of my favorite movies. It's so silly, but it is also like if you take a deep breath and kind of suspend the humor aspect, you're like, wow, that's this is really messed up. So thanks for the recommendation. And speaking of really messed up, we should probably have our conversation now. So we're talking about these chemical companies and people getting harmed and stuff being in water. What are we talking about exactly? Like, can you give us some context or what environmental chemicals really are? How we're, yeah. how, and I know this could be like a two hour response. So like how we're and where we're exposed to them and like why we should be aware of this. Yeah. So, you know, because people often are not always on the same page when we're talking about environmental chemicals or chemicals in general, I always like to start in the beginning and kind of set some, some framework here. So first of all, everything is a chemical. So we are not, we're not like shaking our fists at 
all chemicals because like water is made of chemicals, oxygen is made of chemicals, literally everything is chemicals. And so in this, in this space of environmental health, environmental medicine, we're not looking at all chemicals. We're looking specifically at chemicals or compounds, whether they are man-made or natural. So we have things like lead, arsenic, mercury. These are natural compounds. They are not always in the environment due to natural reasons. I can come back to that. But we're looking at chemicals specifically that are known or suspected to cause harm. And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. So whenever I say the word chemicals, I'm specifically referring to ones that are known or suspected to be harmful in some, in some way, either to humans, to animals, to wildlife, to the environment as a whole. So it's kind of a broad swath, but it is a helpful definition to make sure everyone's on the same page. And not all chemicals are bad, obviously. So like many chemicals have made our lives better, safer, easier, like we're all using technology that relies on chemicals, our medical interventions, our medications. Yes, they have downsides, but they've also helped us as a, as a species tremendously. So we can't demonize chemicals as a whole. In terms of how we are exposed to chemicals, it is literally just through our normal everyday lives. When we're taking a breath, we are breathing in toxic chemicals that might be in our home environment, when we're drinking water, that water contains hundreds and hundreds of contaminants, some in very concerning levels, others in less concerning levels. Most chemicals in drinking water are not heavily monitored or regulated at all. So there's that exposure. We are exposed just through, you know, driving your car, pumping gas, eating food, getting, taking a shower in the morning, putting your sandwich in your plastic Tupperware container to take it to work, heating your food in the microwave. Like there are endless exposure sources that we have. Yes. You know, I know what the, we were talking before we went on air and there was an Instagram post, I think was yours, or you commented on something somewhere, but it had to do with gas stoves. Ah, yes. Yeah. So gas and stoves. I hate cooking on electric stoves. Like I would probably starve if I had to cook on an electric stove because yeah. it bothers me so much, but I just learned about convection what is it called uh, conduction uh, convection no, um, uh, um it's not convection i'm also blanking something with it. magnets induction. like it does induction, induction. i've yeah. never that sounds like magic to me i don't know anything yeah, about it, it but the um i read a lot of stuff from the last few weeks about gas stoves and that the incidence of asthma in mm-hmm. kids who have gas stoves in their house is significantly elevated versus kids who don't and people who don't and yes. other like breathing disorders and problems yeah. and things. And yeah. What's interesting going back to sort of like the industry angle here is that the natural gas industry has pushed really, really hard to a present gas as being a clean, safer alternative. They have, you know, done uh, work with social media influencers trying to be like gas, cooking with gas is clean. Cooking with gas makes my food taste better. It literally doesn't. There's no evidence at all to that. It's just a PR campaign. The other thing that they've pushed really hard for, and I don't know why, probably just because it's an undue burden that might steer people away from having a gas stove in their house, is that at least in the United States, A gas stove is the only gas appliance in a home that doesn't legally require ventilation or proper venting to outside. So if you have a gas stove. I thought it did. Like I always thought it did. And then I've lived in two places in 
one in Berkeley and one in San Diego that did not have that. It's not legally. I mean, it, there are and, certainly there's going to be differences for people that are in the trades. Every yeah, state, yeah. every city has their own different codes. But as a whole, gas stoves are not legally required to have a vent that vents outside, but your gas fireplace does, your gas furnace does. And that's just a, and I don't know, I don't know why, but like of all of the appliances that we use multiple times a day, this, this is one that should be vented outside. But, you know, the, the, the point is that we are being exposed from really thousands of different places at the same time in any, you know, throughout any given day, the personal care products that we use are laundry detergents. These are all sources of exposures to chemicals. And I think one thing that's, you know, kind of important to understand is that, you know, yes, okay, our bodies do have a built-in detoxification system. We have our organs of detoxification. We have our liver, our kidneys, our colon. We sweat. We have a lymphatic system. We have our lungs that can help expel metabolic waste. And so we have this built-in system that like has been keeping us alive in the midst of this basically maelstrom of exposures that we're getting. And it's having a hard time keeping up. So it's a yes and. So many topics in this conversation are yes and answers or it depends answers because there's a lot of gray area and a lot of nuance in this in this topic. It's very rarely a black or black and white cut dry scenario. And so you know, we have these exposures, we have a detoxification system. I'm sure that you know, Michael, from your work with people, uh, when you were working with people one-on-one is that like, you know, hey, people are doing things to their bodies that might compromise their liver function. They might already like, whether it's, they have a really poor diet or they're drinking a lot of alcohol or they're doing other things that compromise liver function. They're not eating a nutrient dense diet that provides the materials that that body needs to de- to properly detoxify, it makes us more susceptible to these exposures that we're getting when we have a shit detox system. People aren't pooping regularly. I mean, that's as basic as you can get, right? And that is literally how our bodies get rid of waste. So for people that have like chronic constipation or that are like pooping, you know, once every two days, the environmental chemical exposures that they're getting have the potential to build up in them faster than they're able to build up in other people. And so, you know, it's not just that we're exposed to a little tiny bit that our bodies can tolerate every day. We're just being constantly exposed and our bodies don't necessarily have the capacity to, to do the thing that it should be, should be able to do. So that's quite the storm of chemicals in the air and in the water and in the things that we put on our body and that's in the kitchen and that you heat your food in and the new car smell and plugins and all the other and and it is in the food if you're eating the food with the ingredient label that looks like this big on the back of it or Um, if you're not and then right even if you're eating an apple sprayed with pesticides right there's an exposure that's there so and then combined with inhibited capacity to uh, get rid of the things so what kind of health effects is there like toxin Sickness, what are we looking at here? How can what are like health effects associated? Now, this is where it gets really scary because there are hundreds of chemicals that I've seen and read about that have well documented, proven, non questionable, statistically relevant, significant, undeniable, strong correlations to like 
really scary shit. Like we're talking cancers and like the worst of the sicknesses, but there's, yeah. And that's when I was all confused because I'm like, who's in charge here? Why is nobody like in the, in the, the wolves guard the hen house, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We'll do that next. But so what, what are we looking at as far as the effects that some of these totally legal and the, the, the ones that slip through that are, you know, released into wherever that shouldn't be, that isn't legal, but totally legal chemicals that are used in a lot of the things we just said. What are some health effects that are proven, known, unquestionable? Yeah, so, so, well, first of all, the proven, known, unquestionable is a little bit challenging to nail down for a couple of reasons. So I'll start by saying in terms of health effects, and I'll expand on this, like almost all of them, right? So any chronic illness, even acute illnesses, acute poisonings, if you're talking diabetes, Alzheimer's, you know, dementia, allergies, autism, digestive issues, neurological issues, every organ system is affected. But in terms of, you know, this definitive, provable, absolute proof, as I like to say, proofs exist in mathematics, they don't miss, uh, exist in, sci- in science. So we don't prove something in science, we have evidence. And the problem that we have here in this sphere of environmental chemicals is, you know, we don't test chemicals on people, right? There's ethical reasons why we don't do that. We don't, I mean, I should say, I'll pump the brakes. There have been many instances historically where we have crossed those ethical boundaries. We have jumped over them, not even crossed them. Um, The Tuskegee uh, syphilis studies comes to mind. There are plenty of instances historically where we have absolutely crossed moral and ethical boundaries and tested things on people. We tend to do that less and less (laughs) these days because we're far more aware of of the consequences of that. But it has happened many, many times. So generally speaking, we don't test chemicals on people because that is unethical to do that. What we do is test chemicals on animals. And that becomes the sort of metric that we use to produce the data that we have. And there's all kinds of calculation alterations that need to happen to say like, okay, in a mouse, if we give a mouse this much, what is the equivalent in a human? And what I just was reading about this quite recently is that, you know, in rodent studies, animals have much, much, much faster metabolism. And so because we have to count for that when we're making a parallel into human levels of exposure, because if a rodent that has a really high metabolism and is able to metabolize a compound far faster than we can, then that means a much lower level of that same exposure that triggered a disease in a rodent is likely to be problematic for humans because we don't get rid of it as fast. We don't break it down as fast. So first of all, we don't test on animal, uh, on people, we test on animals. Then we have to look at that not perfect animal research that we have and then say, okay, we're looking at these levels of chemicals in these different animals and we're seeing these kinds of health effects. Now let's turn to epidemiological research right, where we're looking at population-wide human data on levels of chemicals in the human population and levels of disease. And this is where we have to draw associations, right? That's not a causation. It's an association. Hey, people who have higher levels of this chemical in their body have higher risk of these disease or have children that have higher risk of these issues. But we can't prove that because we're not testing them directly on humans. And so this scenario really does open up 
for uh, an opportunity for the chemical industry to constantly call into doubt the research that we do have because they're like, well, you can't prove that. That's just an association. Animal Humans are not animals. And it's like, well, wait a second, you're using animal research to show us that your chemical is safe. But then when we point to similar animal research to show that that chemical is harmful, you're saying we can't rely on an animal model. So which is it? Like I've seen that argument kind of come up in these rebuttals to um, it's, it's super convenient, right? And so yeah. I'm kind of like, look, dude, you can't have it both ways. Either the animal model is something that we rely on or it's not. Yeah. And let's just not give poison to animals anymore either to know that it's poison. Because now we can understand, like, there's ways to know that without doing that, that certain chemicals can cause cancers and poison and and that we shouldn't like eat, breathe and drink and put poison on our bodies and eat it like is not, it doesn't. Cause this can be super complex. Like the things we're talking about, like these chemicals and these studies and how they work physiologically and what they do in the body and the effects that they have and the disease processes that they can create, whatever, like that can get super biochemistry and nerdy and, yeah. and really, really detailed. And to make changes, it really comes down to like very basic common sense. So we can come back to that. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit. It's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now, back to your episode. I am not... I am not anti, you know, new developments and new creations in science. I mean, we're, we are a product of this conversation is being facilitated by technology that relied on chemicals. And so I'm not like a Luddite and, and anti-progress in terms of, you know, things coming to market that might make our lives better, easier, safer. And I think this is where we have this, I, I, I try to understand the perspective from every side and not just say like, Hey, yeah, it does. It's not a great idea to be surrounded by carcinogens, not ideal. And I have to play devil's advocate as well and say like, okay, well, first of all, human beings have always been exposed to some degree of carcinogens. They're just not been man-made carcinogens. So we're talking volcanic eruptions produce carcinogens. They produce toxic byproducts. They produce formaldehyde and ultrafine particles that can embed in the lung tissue. So like there are sort of natural pieces to this. And I also recognize that if there is not substantial and substantiated evidence that something is harmful, I don't necessarily believe that we need to stifle innovation in that space. I think what needs to happen is that once we learn something is potentially harmful or suspected to be harmful or is harmful, we need to pump the brakes. And and historically, that is not something that we've ever done. So we've learned decades ago that these long chain and now short chain perfluoroalkyl substances, these PFAS chemicals are bad, but like we have never pumped the brakes on their production or regulating or legislating them. And so there is this space. There's, 
there's money involved here. What do you? I, well, I know. Breaks? That's what I'm saying. Like there are no, there are no. Like yeah. you don't want to pump. See, what you're looking for and calling for is like a sane policy of reviewing chemicals yeah. and and testing them and providing safety evidence and things like right. a, like yes. a pretty minimal blow bar. Sane, like let's right. start here. Yeah. Uh, because I think I'm a little bit more luddite. Is that a word? Yeah. Uh, sure. We just made a one. Yeah. yeah. Um, we just made a one. But you're what you're asking for is a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty reasonable bar of yeah. let's have put the burden of proof on companies to show that the thing that they're using is not poison. And that exists and in other countries. Oh, right? for sure. So yeah. People bring it up here. here actually in Italy when they find out that I'm from the States. Two people have asked me why we allow the things in the food that we allow. Yeah. Because here we would burn the street. It was what one yes. of the people said. Yep. And it, I, I didn't have, I don't have answers. That, that's one of many questions that I get asked of why do we allow certain things or do certain things? And I just say, I don't know. I'm here now. So yeah. um, I that's, mean, my, I have, that's my I answer. Have, yeah. I mean, I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts on that. So just so, you know, to bring people who might not know, you know, the European Union has a chemical policy that's quite progressive. You know, in the 1970s, the U.S. was the first country to create, you know, an environmental protection agency and the Toxic Substances Control Act, which is our primary legislation. So it was quite innovative around the world and other countries started to model after what we did. And then the European Union changed their policy. They developed a policy called REACH, um, R-E-A-C-H, and their REACH policy is far more progressive and they take what's called the precautionary principle, which is even if we don't have absolute proof, right, because that's really hard in this space, if we have enough substantial and substantiated evidence that suggests that there is a potential for harm, we are going to move to regulate or restrict or even ban chemicals from being used in the European Union marketplace. And, you know, there was a lot of pushback from U.S. lobbyists and chemical, you know, for the chemical companies, you know, in, in Brussels and the U.N., where they were really trying to fight against this REACH policy. Because if you're a multinational company, if you're a John, Johnson & Johnson or Unilever, Procter & Gamble, and you want to sell in the European market, well, you now have to reformulate your products to meet those regulations. And that's what ultimately happened. They had to reformulate their products to make their products safer for the European market, but they didn't also reformulate those same products for the US market. So this is why we see differences in products in the EU. Which actually costs them more. Yes. Well, I don't know. I don't separate, know how much. To make two like, separate products, I'm sure. Right. I am sure, um, but here's the thing. Just like car manufacturers do this too with miles to gallon because yeah. there's stricter miles per gallon, well, miles or kilometers per liter uh, yeah. things here. Cars yeah. have to be more efficient here by law. Yes. So the car manufacturers make one car for here and one car for the United States where they can make them inefficient for no reason. Other than cost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's I the don't same. have one, but it's maddening. Yeah. It's, it's. It is. And, you know, what's even more frustrating is, you know, these multinational corporations that are conceding to the the policies that are in the European Union are like, okay, okay, fine, fine, we'll do it, are actively fighting in the U.S. against policies that are trying to do the same thing and arguing that it's too expensive and too difficult to do when they have already done it. So it's like, this is what I'm talking about. They're like the ultimate gaslighter. So like, we can't do that. And you're like, bitch, you already did that. 
you did that over there. And so I just, I have no love for that, that scenario. Yeah, I, can't, I, I can't defend it. I have no defense for it. Yeah, you and can't no defend that. You can't defend like, that. And so it's allowed. What, yeah. And so in the European Union, they have much stricter regulations. And now other countries around the world, instead of modeling their environmental and chemical regulation policies against the U.S., program, they're now modeling them after reach, which is great. What that also means is the U.S. is now quite far behind in terms of the way that they regulate and monitor chemicals in commerce, and they're not putting the responsibility on the manufacturer or the chemical industry to say, hey, um, you need to show us that this isn't going to be harmful beforehand, like novel idea. But I think one of the defense mechanisms or arguments, I should say, of the chemical industry and of these product manufacturers. And this is another, like, this is part of where that like outrage just kind of simmers low in your belly all the time is that, you know, what they're like, if we take, whether it's BPA or bisphenols or phthalates, these are chemicals that are used in tens of thousands of products across the marketplace. And so the defense that a lot of these manufacturers individual companies or chemical industry, especially specifically an individual manufacturer, Johnson and Johnson, let's say, or, you know, whoever makes Pantene. And if somebody is like, oh, I have, I'm, I'm experiencing all these health effects and, you know, it's likely due to this chemical, the chemical manufacturer, the product manufacturer is going to go, okay, but like prove that it's my product because all of us are using these same chemicals, right? There's thousands of products. And in those types of court cases, in those tort laws or chemical tort laws, toxic torts, they're called, you really have to prove like, yes, it was this product that caused my disease. And that's an almost impossible burden of proof to meet. And the chemical companies and the, and the uh, product manufacturers know this. They're like, you're never going to be able to prove it was my thing that made you sick because that same ingredient is in thousands of other products in the marketplace. So good luck. Who are you going to sue? You can't sue everyone, right? So this is where when we see cases like the Johnson & Johnson case with the talcum powder and the ovarian cancers and the lymphoma cases against Monsanto, those are very rare and they get publicity because they're rare. And the reason why they're rare is because Johnson & Johnson is the primary producer of talcum-based products in the marketplace. So there really only is one major company to sue. Monsanto is the only manufacturer of those glyphosate-based herbicides. So there really only is one company to sue. But in other instances, like we don't have a system of holding these people responsible or accountable because who are you holding accountable? Everyone? So it's like a big... It's a big sort of nightmarish scenario that favors the product manufacturers and industry because they know you're never going to be able to take us on. We'd like to see you prove it in a court of law. We have more money than you. We will drag you out in litigation for as long as you, as long as you, until you go bankrupt. Which happens, which happens a lot. Right. And so yeah. this is the, this is why like, okay, sure. Yes. The companies, the individual companies that are utilizing these compounds in their products that are linked to all of these chronic health issues and acute health issues in some instances, um, yeah, sure, we can take them to task. And I think as consumers, we should, right? This is where we become vocal advocates. We make demands. This is how we see a shift in the marketplace 
faster than if we were pushing for regulation because regulations and policy changes in government are extraordinarily slow. It took 40 years, four decades for the Toxic Substances Control Act to get a meaningful update. The piece of policy that we have that's regulating the use of cosmetics in the marketplace was written in 1938 and has never been updated. So the wheels of progress in government move extraordinarily slowly. And yet that's where the more meaningful change is going to happen. froze for a while. Oh, dang. I did. I did. How much? Where you said that's where the more meaningful change is going to happen. Hmm. And then uh, that's like it literally cut off. Okay. So I can, I'll just repeat that. So what I was saying is that, you know, yes, we need policy changes. That's a slow moving wheel that we just have to like, keep pushing at and keep advocating for. But the fast change, the real change actually happens when consumers press companies to do better and be more transparent. And we've seen that time and time again, there's countless examples. You know, the reason why we don't have BPA, bisphenol A in baby bottles, granted, we probably have other bisphenols, so not perfect, is because moms were pissed when they found out that there is an endocrine disrupting chemical in their baby's bottle. And so, you know, bad PR for a company that sells baby bottles to be like, shut up, moms, you don't know what you're talking about. So they were like, they acquiesced and were like, great, sorry, we'll do better. We'll be more transparent. And then ultimately there was a, the Consumer Product Safety Commission here in the U.S. banned BPA for use in baby bottles only and only BPA. So like, it's not a perfect outcome, but it is at least an example of when consumers make themselves heard and there is a threat to the bottom line, meaning like, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to buy from somebody else. That is the, that is the language that these corporations hear and will be more responsive to. I, the results I've seen from those type of actions has far exceeded what I've seen from regulatory actions or like trying to get your Senator to go do a thing with the rest of the Senate to make a rule, to make somebody not able, it's, it's, that is, yeah. there's people trying to do that all the time. Wonderful. But yeah, when a whole bunch of people get really pissed off and post things on social media and share it all over, that's when the companies tend to take action. It's not. I want to piggyback on this BPA thing, because I think this is a good example of this difference between chemical policy in the US and the European Union. So in the United States, the safe, tolerable dose, which is the uh, a dose of a chemical or an exposure that the, you know, the our regulatory bodies say, you know, the Toxic Substances Control Act, the EPA, whatever the USDA says is safe for human exposure. It's 50 micrograms per deciliter per day of exposure to BPA. Now, BPA is a ubiquitous chemical. We're all exposed. I think from NHANES data, which was uh, NHANES is our, our national health and environmental, national health, nutrition, environmental, whatever, whatever, uh, survey. And this is our nationwide, essentially human biomonitoring Um, study where we're measuring nutrition factors in people. And also we're looking at chemicals in people. So this is where I was saying earlier, where we're looking at epidemiological data. And a lot of that data relies on NHANES biomonitoring data to understand 
levels of exposure in people. And so in the US, it's 50 micrograms per deciliter per day of exposure to BPA. And according to NHANES data, and this was from, I think, 2008, so I don't know if there's updated data on this, like 93% of the population has metabolites of BPA in their body. Probably that's more. And probably that also includes BPS and BPF, which are replacements that are often used when people are swapping those out. So right now there is a proposed policy change in the European Union that would reduce the safe level of exposure to BPA by 100,000 fold. 100,000 fold, which would in, in, and, and so what that would essentially eliminate it from use because they wouldn't be able to. Yeah. So this particular policy relates only to BPA in its use in food contact materials. So the uh, European Food Safety Authority, which is their version of our USDA, is they're looking at food contact materials. And that is a 100,000 fold drop in the previous level that has been deemed safe, which will basically mean BPA will no longer be, if this goes through, BPA will no longer be used in food contact materials in the European Union. And what I find interesting, first of all, it's BPA only. So this doesn't extend to BPS or BPF. Hopefully that legislation would follow suit. Otherwise, it's just a stupid policy that's meaningless if they're going to replace one chemical with a nearly identical chemical and they're going to go through the trouble of doing this policy change only to replace it with something that's just as bad, if not worse. So baby steps, I'll take what I can get, right? And so you know, what I find interesting is that scientists and regulatory folks in the U.S. are still like, no, 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 it's safe. And it's like, okay, but living in Europe doesn't mean that you have different physiology than if you live in the United States. We're all people. We're all affected the same way. And so why would our science be better than their science, especially when the science that they're considering is sometimes conducted by people in the U.S.? So it's this like, ridiculous conundrum where we're again seeing chemicals regulated far more aggressively or at least even being examined, right? This policy hasn't been inked yet, but the analysis is far more considerate of the reality of our exposure situation and the looking at the science that specifically is saying that these really low levels of exposure are extraordinarily important. And in fact, when it comes to certain chemicals, and I'm happy to dive into this, when it comes to certain chemicals, those tiny little exposures that we're getting every day can actually be more meaningful than a high level of exposure. Wow. Uh, well, it's really optimistic to hear that that's happening with the BPA and the food yeah. stuff here. And it's in this world, uh, any win is any a win. Is a win. win. Yeah. yeah. Like you got to any little win is celebratable. It's like being in an abusive relationship where you're like, I'll take whatever scraps you can give me. (laughs) It really kind of is. And I don't even, I don't want to trivialize that in any way, but it's like, it is, it really is. Like all of humanity is in an abusive relationship with these chemical companies. And so, yeah, anyways, uh, I could get into more parallels there, but I'm going to not. Uh, why isn't this isn't really talked about in the medical community very much at all, uh, especially in the conventional medical community? If you even bring up half of this stuff to like a conventional, even specialist, rheumatologist, doctors, which a lot of our listeners probably have, um, they won't know anything about it, chemicals and disease and all of this. Um, why do you think there is that 
disconnect? Uh, I mean, I think it's like everything. There's a lot of reasons for that. You know, first and foremost, I think it's not the individual doctors or medical professionals fault that they don't know this. And so I think that our first reaction is to kind of shake our fist and be like, you're shit because they don't know this information. But we have to remember that like, that is not their fault, right? They're a product of the education system that they came out of. The problem and the fault lies in our curriculum. And so the curriculum that we have in medical schools just doesn't address environmental exposures almost at all. And, you know, if we, and this is not a criticism necessarily of conventional medicine because conventional medicine is necessary and has its place. If I get hit by a bus, I don't want someone putting an herbal salve on my open wound. I want fucking ER. I want doctors. I want drugs. Right. And so I think all different types of medical providers have a place in our medical system. We're not talking about the insurance system. That's a whole nother, that's another scam. It's a different, that's a different industry nightmare, but the curriculum for medical professionals just doesn't include discussion on environmental health. There was a, an analysis done a couple of years ago that looked at how many medical schools offer curriculum on environmental health. And of the ones that do, what's the average number of hours? And what they found was that the average number of hours um, offered in medical school programs on environmental medicine that offer programs, because most of them did not, the average number of hours was seven. And those hours are most likely going to be looking at things like cigarette smoking, recreational drug use, or you know that type of um, environmental exposure, toxicology conversation. So the, the education is weak, it's limited, there was another survey of both uh, a couple different surveys of medical school graduates and of nursing school graduates that asked them, like, how comfortable do you feel about environmental medicine? And they were like, I don't know anything about it. My education is inadequate. I don't feel prepared to have this dialogue. So the big change there needs to happen on the curriculum side. And that is an incredibly slow moving pivot. And likely, I mean, we already know there's a you know 15 to 20 year gap between what is coming out in the scientific literature and what makes it into standard of care practice for practicing physicians. Like there's already a 20 year gap. That's one person who has to become informed about a topic in order to change something in their practice. When we're looking at academic curriculum, that's a 30, 40 year pivot. I'm guessing. Yeah. And it's about as much as they learn about nutrition or food as well. Well, they have more, so uh, less actually. So the average number of hours dedicated to nutrition is about 19, okay. where we have seven in environmental health. So it's really weak. And so what happens Two is- Two factors that are making a huge impact on the chronic diseases that those doctors are then expected to treat. Yes. Well, and then again, because most of conventional medicine is a reactionary- Right. Once somebody oh. already has the disease or manifestation of symptoms, how do we so they study the disease them? itself and the disease right. processes and the disease mechanisms and the drugs that can be used for the disease, not how to make my patients not get the disease, it get this disease. And that actually is, you know, like preventative medicine, that's preventative medicine, which I my hot take on why preventative medicine is basically just fails as a, as a modality is because we're asking people to allocate mental energy, financial resources to a problem that hasn't happened yet. 
And I think evolutionarily speaking, our brains are not wired for that. Like we are a, look, I have limited resources. I'm going to deal with what's in front of me right now. It's very hard for me to take actions and invest time, energy, and money on a hypothetical, a what if it might be. And so I feel like that's, and that's to me, like why we're so shit when it comes to climate change, right? Like, well, hasn't happened yet. Like you're asking me to change my whole business model. You're asking me to allocate billions of dollars. It's not here yet. And meanwhile, you have climate scientists who are like, uh, it's actually here. It's been here. Anyway, I digress. The point is that like our medical providers just don't have training in this. And, you know, on the one hand, look, there's only so much that can be covered in an eight-year program and residency. And then this is why it's called a medical practice. Like you have to continue to learn. And this is why people need, you know, continuing medical education because you need that push to stay current. And so, you know, there's just, this is just not part of the curriculum yet. And my, my hope is that that will shift. And in the meantime, like, you know, part of what I'm doing, I'm not a clinician, I'm not teaching clinical education, but I teach practical. And I've been, you know, teaching, I've had over 4,000 students in the last 10 years, because I'm trying to fill an education gap that exists and say, look, here is what the research is showing. Here are the studies that are suggesting X, Y, and Z. And here's a practical intervention that we can implement in our lives to minimize exposure and thereby, hopefully, you know, reduce risk or likelihood of uh, disease development or minimize symptoms of a disease that's already present. Thank you for filling that gap. And if you're a practitioner out there, please consider going through Laura's training because the more health practitioners that are aware of these things, the more people are going to be aware of these things. And people who are dealing with chronic issues who, you know, if you're a nutritionist or a health coach or even a doctor out there who's working with chronically ill people and they're doing the diet and the supplements and they're doing some, even some lifestyle changes, or you got them exercising or going outside or whatever. Uh, and these people aren't getting better. Um, this is one of the elephants in the room, along yeah, with a couple absolutely. others that generally get ignored when it comes to chronically ill people. And it puts you as a practitioner. Now I know our practitioners out there and coaches and all these people like, yes, you are inspired and motivated by the outcomes of your clients and patients. And that's your primary objective is to help people. And it feels pretty good to be better at what you do and to be able yeah. to offer like a better service and better value and more confidence that you can help people get to the root of things. And this type of knowledge, it totally shifted the way that I had conversations with people. Like I, and I didn't know about your trainings 12 years ago. Or like I didn't know about, I didn't think I knew until about, I was about six or seven years ago, I figured out what you were up to. But when I was working with clients one-on-one, -on -one, which is predominantly right around then and before, yeah, I just read the stack of books, which takes a really long time to do. And you, and I yeah. mentioned in your, in your bio, I think um, oh, I like spending hundreds of hours researching on your own. Yes, I spend hundreds of hours researching on my own, probably yeah. hundred, a couple hundred, and that was enough. Yeah. Like that was enough yeah. to where I was like, oh, I get it. Okay, I got it. Get it. This is enraged. Like I couldn't even handle any more of it. But I didn't yeah. have. A lot of these books that I read that are like this big, there's like three main takeaways in that book that was really important for me to understand. And yeah. I spent like three weeks reading the book. And what I've seen out of your work is like really condensing a lot of this extremely overwhelming field of shit to get into. Like it is the most overwhelming of all the things to learn as somebody who's going to help people with their health is chemicals. because. It 
is what is that called when somebody's like scared to leave their house uh agoraphobia yeah it can easily turn so and, and then then the things are in your house so like it's not even that it makes you not want to leave your house it's like this could easily trigger people into becoming like i'm going to build a bubble that i live in and then that bubble's probably going to be made out of plastic and then i'm going to be and then, plastic. yes like, that's actually my joke i actually i have a joke like that and then i say like What's the bubble made out of? What kind of plastic is it? Off gassing. Yeah, and then you're gonna have off gas plastic. So like, this can get really intense and really overwhelming and really like deep and heavy and never ending and all encompassing, whatever. And the way that you teach about it, which I'm actually gonna impromptu ask you to come back for a part two because I can't sure. do another hour of the the yeah. podcast, and yeah. I want to talk more about like the rest of the things that we didn't really get into. We talked yeah. big picture around the chemical industry and why this doesn't get dealt with in the medical industry and why activism amongst consumers is going to beat government action when it comes to speed because there are some really exciting government action things going on um, but i want to do a part two where we actually teach some things yeah and but what i like about the way that you teach is that you go into the bottomless pit of all the shit and then you come out and you teach health practitioners what exactly they need to know in order to be better at their jobs and to better educate their clients and their patients without them having to jump into that same pool for an endless amount of time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's exhausting and it's overwhelming. And, you know, it's, as, as you know, when you're going down those rabbit holes and you're looking at studies and then, you know, one study is, oh, well, this study has, 40 different citations. And I now want to read all 40 of those papers, right? Like it is an endless, endless rabbit hole. And, and, you know, I think that one of the things that is important for, especially for practicing provide, you know, care providers, whether they're a health coach or nutritionist or MD or an ND, and I've had the whole range in, in my courses is that they don't have the time to do all that research, but they still want to help the client who's coming in the door with Hashimoto's or some other kind of thyroid disease. And they're like, Hey, I've done all these different things. And, you know, my, my take is like, well, look, there's a lot of chemicals that we're being exposed to in a single day that we know there's a substantial amount of research showing that this, it suppresses thyroid function, that it interferes with, it displaces iodine in the thyroid and and leads to all of these downstream health effects. So as a, as somebody who's working with somebody on thyroid issues, metabolic issues, gut issues, hormone issues, um, we can't just look at nutrition, lifestyle, supplementation, and medication. Um, We also have to consider our environment. You know, there was a, a, this was a, a survey that was done. This was, I think, in like the late 90s, and we don't have a more current one, but it was a survey of the American population about like how much time do you spend inside versus outside? And the survey found that like 93% of our lives are spent inside the built environment, meaning in our homes, which was like 60%, our offices and our vehicles, and only 7% was spent outside. And so to me, the, the absolute arrogance to assume that like that 93% of time spelt, spent in a built environment couldn't influence your health. 
is outrageous. And so we know that that's not the case, even going back to what you said about the gas stoves. That's just one exposure that we can see hay has an association with asthma in children. For example, you also add incense into that home. That also is going to up their, you know, incense and plugins and scented candles and and fabric softeners and laundry detergents and cleaning (laughs) products and all the things that make your house smell like things. Yeah. Um, or not smell like certain things, but yes. um, all of those things in a wider, like more simple level, we are physiologically, we are part of that environment that we only spend 7% of our time in. And we are not part of the environment that we then spend 93% of our time in. So our physiology is mismatched with its environment 93% of the time then. And to think that that's not going to impact the way our body works and the way our mental health works and everybody, there's, there's a few small percentage of people, but most people will say like, oh, I went to the lake today. It was amazing. I went on a hike today and it felt so good. Or I went on this thing. I was outside or you like it, no shit. Like, of course, that's where we belong to be. Like, that's your body's like, oh, yeah, this, I'm this, this is good. I'm in this place. That's good. I like this. This feels good. It also happens to have way less of the chemicals that, yes. uh, so do that. Like, do that. We'll, yeah, give you, right. we'll give you way more things later on, part two. But yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll end part one with do that. Yeah, go outside. <laughs> and if you can't go outside, open your windows in your house. Right. Yeah, a little bit. And I know that it's winter right now and there's places in this country where that's not a feasible thing, but still try to go outside. And I know I am not, I'm a hypocrite right now because I don't do outside winter things. And I actually left places that have winter because I didn't go outside ever because I hate it. But if you live in there, those places, one, I'm sorry, two, <laughs> doing things like snowshoeing and cross-country skiing, and I don't know what other things, but there's always a long list of things. Those people who like claim to like the winter, you're out there. I know you're out there. There are those people that are like, oh, I love the winter. I love to go do, and then they list like 12 things they love to go do. Go do those things outside. I don't yeah. know what they all are, because usually my brain shuts off after like the first three, and I'm just like, nope. But um, yeah, it's it snowed the second day I was here, and I almost had like a full mental breakdown of like, That's, what did I do? Oh, like, what did I just do? <laughs> but it was like a dusting of snow, and then it was gone. It's supposed yeah. to dust again on Saturday, but it's been like sixty this week. So yeah. one day where it's dusty. Um, actually, I should say it's been sixteen because I'm trying to convert myself to right. all of the Celsius, Celsius and metric yeah. system things. But um. Yeah, go outside. And then next part, we will talk about specifics, more specifics. This was like a broad sense topic, uh, broad sense conversation to give you like the scope and the scale of the issue and the problem and the, and some larger scale solutions and some news of things that are happening. Like way to go EU. I didn't know that. And that's exciting. Um, People get way more pissed over here when they find out about things that like companies are doing that are harmful. Like it's like a collective rage that spikes really quickly. Well, especially um, when it comes to food, and and, yes. and that's because food and is an enormous drink. cultural component. I have things I can. I'll just do, leave a cliffhanger because I have some interest. If you remind me, I have an interesting story to tell on that as it pertains to the French because they also love their food. 
French food cliffhangers story. I just took notes. Uh, Yeah. In France, Italy, and Spain, you can't mess with their food or people get very, very upset. So, uh, or the wine there, they know there was a study last year that came out about, or maybe it was last year, the year before that even organic wines from California were relatively high in glyphosate and other stuff that shouldn't be in them. Uh, They know that here. Like they will bring that up because they're offended by California wines as a whole, but like they bring up that they have chemicals in them that are not allowed to be used here. So then you're drinking chemical wine and here is not chemical wine. And that people there that have responses to wine, like don't feel good when they drink wine. That doesn't happen to people here. They will say just like the gluten here doesn't upset people nearly as much either. So we can get into more specific stuff like that next time. In the meantime, if you're a health practitioner, go to Laura's website and check out her professional trainings. Where should they go exactly? Is there like one spot on your site? No, or just, what? I mean, no, they can just go to lauraadler.com and, and peruse. And then okay. folks can, I mean, I have, a, there's a courses tab that people can go and check out the courses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for professionals, you have a really cool training. Uh, people are always asking me what water filter they should get. And I literally just send them a link to your website because... Laura created a course that helps you figure out what water filter you should get because not every water needs the same set of filters, which I know that makes it way less convenient and there should just be this one mega filter that saves all the water and then you should just buy that one and then we could all just say, hey, buy this one and then it will be really easy, but that's not true. So she made a really simple course that teaches you how to know what's in your water and what filters are what and how to get them and all of that. So that's for anyone. And then there's professional trainings there on how to teach this stuff in an effective way. So before we come back, go there, check that out, do that. Also Instagram. Instagram. Metric of information and education there that's really accessible to anybody, but obviously still geared towards my my practitioner crowd. And our our listeners are kind of in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle of that. So yeah, check her out on Instagram. Really good content there. It's at environmental toxins nerd is my IG handle. Environmental at environmental toxins nerd on Instagram and LaraAdler.com on the interwebs. And go check that stuff out. And I'll wrangle Lara into another podcast recording. And we will do a part two uh, to save you from listening for two straight hours at one time. We will do one straight hour two times. Perfect. Well, thank you, Lara. It's always super fun. And I will be harassing you soon to come back on here. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, take it easy. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases. 